Welcome to the podcast, Speak Your Peace. This is a podcast about Utah's history, produced by the Utah Department of Heritage and Arts. I'm Brad Westwood, Senior Public Historian. If there's one place, one podcast to get your Utah history fix, this is the place. Our guest today is Reverend Franz A. Davis, Pastor Emeritus of the Salt Lake City Calvary Baptist Church. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. So good to have you here. And in the prior uh, segment, we were talking about uh, Utah's governor, Scott Matheson, John Huntsman, and then, of course, early on, Calvin Rampton, all of whom you interacted with. Not only did I interact with the three of them, but it was Governor Rampton who appointed the first African-American to the Utah State Board of Corrections, who hired the first two or three African-Americans to work in the correction system. I was the first uh, board member. Uh, Reverend D.A. Washington was the first uh, chaplain. Uh, the uh, There were two others that were hired as counselors, and it was Governor Rampton, Calvin Rampton, who made sure that that happened. And it happened one day I walked into his office and I said to him, listen, uh, African-Americans are 2% or less of the population, but they make up 16, 17% of the prison and there are no African-Americans working there. And he picked up the telephone, made a phone call and said by the end of the week, the human resource department was to hire an African-American. Later on, Governor Matheson, Matheson, Scott, Scott Matheson, Matheson uh, appointed me to serve as well as many others on the Martin Luther King Human Rights Commission. And that was a, an exciting time because we were charged with the responsibility to interact with every department in the state of Utah to ensure that there was some diversity in those departments. And then finally, Governor John Huntsman when he was governor, appointed me to the Salt Lake City Community College Board of Trustees and then later appointed me to the highest board of education in the state of Utah, the Board of Regents, uh, where I served for 10 years and eventually became the vice chair of the Board of Regents. But they were good friends. They cared. They were concerned about making sure that everybody in this community was included. So, Reverend, I, Utah's African-American history goes beyond uh, before the Utah pioneers. In fact, 20 years before the Mormon pioneers came to Utah, Mr. Dobson and James Beckworth were African-Americans in what was Utah territory during those days. And Dr. Ronald Coleman has done research and written about uh, how those two rugged mountain men were fur trappers in the 1820s. It's the 1840s before the Mormon pioneers come. And when they come, Hark Lay, Greenflake, and Oscar Crosby's mm-hmm. are with them as African-Americans. And their names are listed on many of the statues around town. And they're called colored servants. But they were part of the initial group of pioneers who came in. First vanguard. First vanguard who came in. And then by 1850, uh, Elijah Abel, 
and his two sons are active in the LDS church and hold the priesthood in the LDS church, which was a fascinating thing in and of itself. And they helped to build the tabernacle and the temple downtown Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, And then uh, finally, uh, by the uh, 1890s, African-Americans start to develop their own institutions. And they start with the Trinity AME Church and then the Calvary Baptist Church, uh, both of which were started essentially at the same time period. And, and all very close to the railroad stations in West Salt Lake. All very close to the railroad stations, all very near, because there were the sleeping car porters, there were the train uh, maintenance men, there were the train upkeep people who were there in downtown Salt Lake, but also in Ogden, 25th Street was a center of the African-American community. And then it helped her price Utah. There were large numbers of African-American families who lived there to help do the work of attaching the helper engine to get the train over uh, the mountain into Salt Lake City. So African-Americans have been a part of the building from the day one before the pioneers that we usually refer to came and then since then have continued to be an integral part. Recently, um, in my research related to West, West Salt Lake City, the Pioneer Park neighborhood, um, I have come across a number of uh, terrible acts of lynching. Utah has a history, although only a few, it is still uh, something of some reason for pause and uh, worry and concern to us contemporary people today. Uh, one I tracked was um, in the 1870s, a gentleman named Harvey. But there's another one that occurs later in... Joe uh, Harvey was to, the first and Robert Marshall, 1925. You recall a story, or would you recount your story related to uh, marking uh, the grave? Well, Robert Marshall was lynched in the uh, 1925. He had uh, killed a guard at a uh, at a mine in southern uh, in the Price Helper area. Uh, he was eventually turned in by the person he was hiding. Uh, where he was hiding, uh, they caught him. They transported him to town. Uh, the sheriff uh, left him with people with guns. They took him out to the Critchlow farm and there lynched him. And when they lynched him, uh, he was finally dead, and they were buried him in a grave on the campus of what was Eastern Utah State uh, University, now a part of Logan Utah State University. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, although they buried him, nobody marked his grave. And so a few years ago, a witness to the lynching, Matt Gilmore, who was a powerful attorney here, his son Sandy Gilmore was a reporter for the uh, one of the local television stations and CBS. Uh, but uh, they uh, and I got together, we invited the leader of the Episcopal Church, the bishop, the bishop of the Catholic Church, the metropolitan of the Greek Church, and the presiding uh, president for the area from the LDS Church to join us. We went to uh, Price to mark the grave, 
and a grave uh, stone maker in the price area agreed that he would provide the, the stone. But when we got there, the Hill Air Force Base uh, officers and their bum-sniffing dogs were uh, checking out the building and wouldn't let us in because they were threats against my life that people were going to get me if I came to Price, Utah. Finally, we did go in and we marked a grave. Dr. Larry Gerlock, who was a historian at the University of Utah, who wrote a wonderful book, The Blazing Crosses in Zion, The History of the Klan in Utah, uh, was the speaker, and he did a magnificent job. The Calvary Baptist Church's choir sang, and we had a great day. It was very tense, and it was aired on national television. What year was that? Uh, 1983, Reverend? I believe it was. And the grave is in a public place where grave it can still be visited? in a public visited? place. It can be visited. The stone is there, and it's on the campus of the college uh, there in Price, Utah. And um, uh, this was an unmarked grave until that time? It was unmarked until that time. In fact, uh, when they got ready to bury Mr. Marshall, uh, finding somebody who would conduct his funeral was problematic. And finally, a deacon, William Gregory, from here in Salt Lake, went to Price and conducted the funeral. So uh, in both of these lynchings, there is um, absolutely no due diligence, no, uh, uh, no rights afforded them as citizens of the United States. It well, was- that's what lynchings are. Lynchings are when people are killed, they are accused, and then they are killed for crimes that they are accused of without there having been any due process. Now, after Robert Marshall was killed, they did arrest Uh, a number of people, and they did take them to trial. But while the newspaper said that there were more than a 1,000 people who witnessed the lynching, when the trial date came, there was nobody who was willing to admit that they had seen or participated or been there when the lynching happened. So all of the people who were part of it, although tried by, indicted by a grand jury and tried, they still not uh, called to account. So it, as much as perhaps there is some aspirations towards uh, uh, love and mutual respect across humanity by many people in our state, in some ways, well, in most ways, we're very much like the nation or have been in our history. In fact, uh, Utah, uh, just like the rest of the nation in so many ways, Historically, if you talk about when African-Americans came, they came before the Mayflower in the country. They came before the pioneers in Utah. And then when the pioneers came and when the Mayflower came, African-Americans came along with them. Also in terms of the lynching process, it was primarily an incident for the South, but it happened here in Utah. Utah had separate but equal And they practice. In fact, the Century Theater downtown Salt Lake used to have a sign that hang outside, colored entrance to the balcony, colored entrance to the balcony. So if you want to go in the theater, you have to enter and go into the balcony. So very much 
the activities that occurred in the larger country, Utah became a part of that. And although Utah was not a slave state, it still practiced those separate but equal practices here in this community. Well, that continued until uh, the 1960s and 70s. Uh, redlining was something that... Redlining occurred. was very much a part. In fact, if you were African-American, you could not purchase a house east of Foothill Boulevard. It was against uh, the codes or the restrictive covenants that were in the real estate contracts. In Ogden, Utah, you couldn't purchase a house east of Washington Boulevard. Uh, and bankers would tell you, well, sorry, we can't help you out with a loan for that area. Yeah, if you were east of uh, Foothill in Salt Lake or Washington Boulevard in Ogden. Do you recall when you first arrived in Utah? <clears throat> um, this was uh, before the big uh, exodus, you could say, of the or the demographic shift across Salt Lake Valley. There was so much of a city, so much of a community with hundreds, thousands of small stores in Utah, a vibrant community. Um, do you recall your interactions early on with the African-American community? Uh, sure. When uh, early on, African-Americans were larger in the inner city, downtown, uh, west side, early uh, beginning east side of Salt Lake City. Uh, and then uh, they put in the freeway, and the freeway went right straight through what was predominantly the African-American community, and many of the African-Americans were displaced. Uh, that meant then that the businesses, the stores, the uh, barbershops, the hairdo places mm -hmm. uh, also were dispersed, and so it was problematic. Still today, when people come to Utah who are African-Americans and they want to know where can they get their hair cut, where can they get their hair done if they're female, mm -hmm. it's, uh, we have to tell them which places uh, are possible for that to happen. It's difference between doing hair that is not straight and hair that is straight, uh, whether you're cutting it or whether you're doing it. And so there's all kinds of... of specific needs and interests of the community, but it isn't apparent. Uh, one has to still kind of get some aid to navigate through Utah culture. In fact, that's why I argue that you cannot say that we are all the same because we are not the same. We have differences and those differences have to be recognized, acknowledged and celebrated, not pushed under the table or ignored as if they don't exist. And perhaps that kind of strong statement where we're all the same kind of um, allows that to be swept under or ignored. It allows it to be swept under. And in fact, it promotes things like a few years ago here in Utah, we had an English-only um, drive or move to uh, in have English-only as the language. Well, that ignores a whole host of people refugees, people from uh, the South America who speak Spanish. It ignores all of their heritage and history. And we ought not ever ignore the heritage and history. It's diversity that makes for the spice of life. Now, that's something you're 
papa used to say. My my dad used to say all the time, diversity is what makes for the spice of life. <laughs> and if you go to the smorgasbord restaurant, you go there because of the diversity of foods. If you want turkey, you can eat turkey. If you don't, you can eat chicken. If you don't want it, you can eat steak. If you don't want steak, you can eat uh, liver, but whatever it is, but whatever you prefer, you can pick and choose because of that diversity. Um, you've been describing to me in the past some things related to your interaction with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, your friendship with Elder Faust or with the current president, uh, Russell Nelson. Tell me some stories associated with your interaction with that church. My first uh, interaction that I can recall happened at the Salt Lake City Airport with President Lee. President Lee and his bodyguard showed up and uh, I had pushed a button to ride the elevator uh, and they asked me to take the other elevator or the next elevator because the president was there. I had no idea who the president was or the president of what. And so I insisted and rode the elevator with him. And then everybody sort of chuckled at me because I was riding on the same elevator as the president. Uh, with President Hinckley, uh, he helped us to get a lot of uh, the laws passed, uh, including the Martin Luther King Holiday Bill. Then uh, President Monson was also very instrumental in working with the community. But more importantly, before President Nelson became president, uh, he was an elder. <clears throat> he invited me and my wife to join him for a concert with the uh, Tabernacle Choir, we went. Afterwards, he asked me how was the choir singing, and I told him, quite frankly, uh, that they did a great job, but they sang without feelings, and that if he wanted to hear a choir who had feelings, the come to the Calvary Church. The next Sunday, he came to Calvary, <laughs> and he listened to uh, the choir sing and then said to me, I agree. Uh, more recently, just uh, last year, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints decided that they wanted to be uh, working together with the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and he was invited to be the keynote speaker at their national convention. But before he went, he came and visited with me, and then he spent a good deal of his speech talking about the relationship that we had built together as a part of this community and that that's what makes a real difference in terms of change. What, what were some of the other items or things you discussed or advised him to speak of? Well, I advised him to talk about our relationship, to talk about how we had worked together in terms of the purchase of land. And by the way, I was at the uh, primary children's hospital and Elder Faust came in and said to me, uh, if you ever need anything, let me know. And I told him I needed a piece of land. And the next day his office called and told me where all of the land was that was within my description of what we needed. And he promised that we could purchase uh, for a market rate any piece of land that they own. 
And that's where the current Calvary Church is located on a piece of land that we purchased from the LDS Church. Mm -hmm. uh, we worked together on the German Christmas at the uh, This is the Place Park. Mm -hmm. uh, we've uh, spent time together with the uh, former director of the choir at Utah State University uh, and uh, just uh, one thing after the other. But uh, there seems to be an interest and a commitment in making positive change. And I said to Elder Nelson that it's not enough for the people at the top to make a decision about positive change, but you need to get the word to the people at the bottom. So as we close out this second section, this segment, I'd like to ask you over this 50, well, 60 years here in Utah, what's, what do you see the forecast? What is the opportunities? What are the obstacles that we need to get through in order to uh, reach the place you have envisioned all these years? Uh, the, my vision for Utah includes currently four main obstacles. Number one, we've got to open the educational system so that everybody, regardless of their history, their background, their color, can get as much formal education as they possibly can. Secondly, there's the social settings. We have to be inclusive about people uh, who are different than us and invite them to be a part of the dances and the social activities that are going on. Thirdly, there's the economic problem. Uh, we've got to get people at every level in the companies that are in our community that represent the different groups of people around our community. And then thirdly, fourthly, there's the political problem. We've got to find a way to diversify the parties so that we don't have one dominant party uh, that dominates politics in the state of Utah and that that party is associated with the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, on the other side, we've had great experiences. Whatever we've sought to try to do, uh, we've found a way to get it done. We have a scholarship, for example, at every college in the state of Utah for young African-American and African descent people to go to college. We have an expect the great day once a year where we invite people to come and find out where jobs are, find out what uh, educational opportunities are available, how they can participate in the society. And then perhaps more than any of that is the interfaith committee that uh, I was a part of forming to ensure that people of the not dominant religious groups can be considered equal with those who are part of the dominant religious group. And my comment and decision to everybody is that although there are those who are outnumber others, that all of us have something to contribute to the conversation. And together, we're in the boat together. Mm-hmm. All rise together. We all rise or we all fall together. Reverend, thank you. This has been a, a wonderful uh, 50 minutes with you. Uh, it 
pays no justice to the contribution and all that you've accomplished in your time as uh, as the pastor of the Calvary Baptist Church and as a civic leader. But I do appreciate you coming and speaking on Speak Your Peace. Thank you. And although I'm no longer the pastor of Calvary, the current pastor is a new person in town, and I'm sure they would welcome everybody to come and see what it's like to be uh, in a majority setting where African Americans dominate. And tell us that address again. The address and the times is of 10, the service. The address for the Calvary Baptist Church is 1090 South State Street. 1090 South State Street, right by the strong and the Acrea automobile dealerships. And, isn't and the time is 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. that they have worship services every Sunday. Everybody's invited. Uh, yes. Thank you so much, Reverend. My pleasure. Speak Your Peace is a podcast recorded and engineered at the Studio Underground here in Salt Lake City. And once more, I want to thank Connor Sorensen for being our sound engineer and our post-production editor. The past is never truly in the past. It's all around us. It informs us. It speaks to both our shared and to our separate identities. Speak Your Peace is a podcast where writers, historians, curators, all those who contribute to Utah's history have a chance to share their insights and discoveries. If there's one place, one podcast, you get your Utah history, we hope this is the place. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you'll listen to our next podcast of Speak Your Peace.